Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm speaking with Terry Brown, who is an assistant professor at the Warwick University Clinical Trials Unit and has a deep interest in cardiac arrest survival and their outcomes and is currently working on the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest outcomes registry. So welcome, Terry, on this beautiful sunny day. Good morning, Paul. It is. Well, a I hope it. I, I hope it's sunny where you are. It's it, sunny where it, I am. It is. It is sunny now after the early morning fog when I got up early. So yeah, it is bright sunshine now. And you work at Warwick University Clinical Trials Unit, and I see quite often a lot of research on cardiac arrest comes from Warwick University. Why is that? It's mainly because Professor Gavin Perkins, who's uh, director of the Clinical Trials Unit, is sort of a world leader in the area of out-of-hospital out of cardiac arrest, resuscitation, care, critical care. He's on the national committees and the international committees, so the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. So, yeah, Gavin is a major leader in the research on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So he, he pulls in projects and et cetera in, into your area. So, I mean, you're, you're a researcher, is that right? I am, yeah. My background is epidemiology, statistics. Prior to coming to Warwick, I've worked at numerous universities and for Health and Safety Laboratory, Health and Safety Executive. So background in occupational, environmental and public health epidemiology. I see that you've done quite a few projects over your time relating to cardiac arrest. Could you sort of briefly mention about those? Well, I've been with Warwick uh, for nearly five years now, and I had started with the registry to look at changes in bystander CPR rates and how they have changed. So initial project was looking at, as I say, bystander CPR and how it varies, has varied over time within England. It's mainly looking at English data because of how the OCA registry is set up. So we're looking at the variation over time and also how it's varied during the daytime and what impacts it has on survival. So the research that I've carried out is looking at the characteristics of neighbourhoods of where bystander CPR occurs. And there's a paper that had published last year. And then more recently is looking at public access defibrillation. Where are the defibrillators in the community? Are they in the right place? and in the right place to sort of treat or be available to treat any out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So those are the main two areas, but there's other bits of areas that we look we're involved in, looking at attitudes towards CPR, training, and issues like that. We've been very busy with sorting out the registry and getting all the data cleaned up and producing our annual reports that we've not sort of produce that many publications from the data but we have planned to do that but we are, we do encourage external researchers to get in touch with the registry to, to do their own research using the data from the registry but yeah we have the data we have little projects that we'd like to get going and you know there's many thoughts on what we can do with the data that is just finding enough time to sort of look at them as i said 
there's small projects that I'm interested in looking at, as I mentioned earlier, uh, patients being administered to cardiac arrest centres in, in England and in the UK. And it's in, in line with what Tom Keeble does at the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre, looking at those patients and then also looking at termination and resuscitation rules. So there's little projects that we can get involved in. Uh, it's just a finding the matter of time and to analyse the data. Okay, so on this podcast, we're going to be talking about the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest registry. Can you tell me what this registry is and what is the point of it? The background of the registry is that standardised the care of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to see what the variation is with regards to treatment and outcomes. The feasibility of setting up the registry was carried out in 2013 and then the data collection really started in 2014. And since then, we collected data on an annual basis. But as of April of last year, the data comes into the registry on a monthly basis. So as I say, we have data from 2014 and it looks at patient characteristics, ambulance indicators. So with regards to characteristics, We uh, have information on patients' age and gender, those sort of things. With regards to ambulance service information, we have information on where the arrest occurred, all the call times, so when the call was made to 999, the call was connected to the ambulance dispatch centre, when they arrived on scene, and then basic information on the etiology, so what caused the cardiac arrest, whether it was of cardiac origin, also have information on whether it was a result of trauma, drowning, drug overdose, and then what was the initial cardiac rhythm that was measured by the paramedics, whether the event was witnessed or not, who witnessed it, whether bystander CPR was carried out, and then information that the ambulance staff provide with regards to administration of drugs whether intubation was carried out, whether they applied a defibrillator, whether shocks were given. And then as a result of that, whether there was a return of spontaneous circulation or a patient was declared deceased and whether the patient was admitted to hospital with or without a ROSC. And then the ambulance staff have been collecting on whether a patient has been discharged from the hospital alive or not. So there's quite, it's quite a lot of data you're collecting there, isn't it? Perhaps we can we we can sort of delve down into that a little bit um, later. But to sort of put it into context, I think you mentioned this is NHS England. Are you collecting information from the other parts of the UK? And where does this fit in, say, a world programme? Is there such a thing as a world programme? Are other countries doing similar things? There are a number of other registries around the world. The main ones, there's North America which is the CARES registry. There are small registries all around Europe. There's a, there's a project called Eureka, which is the European Registry of Cardiac Arrests. And the paper's just been published on from Eureka 2. And in, in that study, there was data submitted from 27 registries. And then worldwide, there is the Victorian Ambulance Registry in Australia. And don't quote me on this, I think there is a similar registry for Western Australia. There's the Australian-New Zealand registry. There's PAROS, which is a collection of Asian 
registries and that covers Singapore, Japan and a number of other countries. So there are other registries around the world and we've had a two meetings now to discuss what data to collect and how we should collect the data and what research we need to, need to carry out. Within the UK, the registry only collects information from English ambulance services. We're sorting out the Welsh data. Northern Ireland are very keen to be involved as well, but they have personnel logistic problems. Scotland have their own registry, but we can't access the, the raw data because of data confidentiality. You said mentioned that you've had two get-togethers of the people behind the registries. I guess the idea is to try and get some unified format so that you can understand each other's results and improvements, perhaps? Yes. So there are a set of guidelines. It's called the Utstein guidelines. And that basically tells you what information is required so that we have a definitive set of key variables that we ask the ambulance services to provide. And then there's supplementary information and then additional information that we ask for. Can we compare results from the UK with another country? When we say that the average is, I don't know, 8% survival in the UK and, and they quote, I think it's about 25% for somewhere like Norway, are we quoting apples with apples or is it slightly different? It does vary with regards to how you define a case. Some look at the survival overall. So overall, our survival in England is about 8 to 10%, and that's all cases. If you then dig down deeper into if the case was witnessed, did they receive bystander CPR, was the initial rhythm shockable? If you look at more specific cases, then the survival goes up. So survival, for all cases, uh, hospital handover for all patients is about 20%. For those that the, the first rhythm is shockable, the Rosk hospital handover is 52%. So there's a big difference. And then if you look at survival to discharge in a shockable rhythm, their survival to discharge is nearly 30%. The earlier you get to a, a cardiac arrest and CPR is applied and, and treatment starts, the, then the, the more chance that that patient is in a shockable rhythm. So, you know, it, it is important. It is, it is. Just to take a step back a bit, we're just talking about England, aren't we, at the moment, because that's all you collect the data for. Yeah, it's just England at the moment, yeah. And how many ambulance services are there, is it? It's 11. 11, is it? Okay. Yeah, if we include Isle of Wight. Okay, so we've got 11 ambulance services feeding data into you, and they go out to uh, a cardiac arrest. How many of those are we talking about roughly every year within England that ambulance attend? So for 2018, we had just under 31,000 cases submitted to the registry. That does not include three months data from two registries. On that basis, it's about another 500 cases. But in addition to those, there are those that they don't attempt resuscitation. So the ambulance services also send information on the total number of cases that are attended. And it works out for the whole of the country about 80,000. So there are about 80,000 cardiac arrests in England in 2018, of which only about 31,000 received resuscitation attempts by ambulance staff. 
we've got 11 ambulance services and in England there's 80,000 cardiac arrests of which 31,000 are attempted resuscitations and what's the average success rate? Roscott Hospital is about 20% and survival to discharge is just under 10%. So basically that translates as if you get to hospital alive you've got a 50-50 chance of coming out alive. Yeah, that's about roughly, that, yeah. Roughly, it. yeah. That equates to something similar that Dr. Keeble said to me before, actually. Yeah. Of course, it varies with age and gender. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about variability in different ambulance services? I think the original quote was about 8 to 24%. There was a significant variation, but it, to, to an extent is... That was because how the ambulance services were submitting the data, who they were submitting the data on and who they were not submitting the data on. So the actual variation is about 5 or 6% between the ambulance services. Again, it's down to the resources, you know, the locality of where the events occur. If you think about the more rural communities, you know, people that have a cardiac arrest up in, in the middle of the Lake District and getting to them is very difficult. But you might say sometimes it's more difficult to get to a cardiac arrest in the the middle of London than it is in rural communities. We're trying to sort of make adjustments to the information and looking at what impacts survival rates. So they're basically, they're doing the same thing. It's just that there are things beyond their control that they can't allow for. I guess from what you're doing, you can learn from the data where perhaps the best place where public access defibrillators are or perhaps more training of the community in CPR skills comes into play. We had had a paper published at the beginning of last year looking at the neighbourhood characteristics of where there is a high incidence of cardiac arrest and where bystander CPR rates are low. So those communities are more, more deprived areas of the country where there is sort of a more ethnic diverse population where there's more older people more unemployment things like that so those those areas where we've identified where incidence is high and bystander cpr rates are low we've identified these hotspot areas and some preliminary work has been done with andy Lockie and the university of leeds medical school to target hotspot areas in west yorkshire so target those areas for CPR training. And some similar work is just starting for uh, West Midlands as well. And this is sort of in addition to the training that goes on as part of Restart a Heart Day and other training that goes on on an ad hoc basis throughout the country. So is there anyone actually sort of coordinating all of that training that goes on is, or is it very much ad hoc? The Restart Heart Day is a very coordinated training day. It's coordinated mainly through uh, Yorkshire Ambulance Service and the uh, Resuscitation Council UK. It's Dr. Andy Lockie and Jason Carline who works for Yorkshire Ambulance Service. It's all coordinated through the ambulance services to an extent. And so it's normally 16th of October every year. People go into mainly schools at the moment. They go into schools, secondary schools, and do sort of mass CPR training. And last year, I think it was nearly 300,000 children. So that anybody who wants training, if they get in touch with the ambulance service, there is somebody that coordinates training who will be able to help. 
Is all this extra training in the public showing any dividends yet? When I did some analysis a couple of years ago, presented a paper at the European Resuscitation Council annual conference. In about 2014-15, the bystander CPR rates were about 50-55% of those cases that were witnessed by a bystander. Last year, of all the cases that were witnessed, the bystander CPR rate was about 74%. So it's a significant improvement in bystander CPR rates if the case was witnessed. Wow, yeah, that, that's, that really surprises me it's that high. But I guess we've got to um, put into context, where, whereabouts are these cardiac arrests happening? When we say 74%, is that of 74% of people in the street who has a cardiac arrest? Those cardiac arrests that occur in a public place are more likely to receive bystander CPR. A bystander can mean anybody, really. We don't distinguish who who the bystander is. But about 80% of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests occur in place of residence. And for some reason, the CPR rates in those are lower because a lot of cardiac arrests that occur in the home are not witnessed or there is a reluctance for members of the family to perform CPR on a relative. I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? A lot of arrests are unwitnessed in places of residence because they, you know, they will occur in the middle of the night and you know, a relative will not know. That's interesting in itself, what you just said there. So they're in bed asleep and they have a cardiac arrest, even though there's someone next to them. That, that's counted as unwitnessed, I guess, because they're asleep. Yeah, basically that. You know, they've not witnessed the patient having the arrest. Do, do we uh, know how many occur like that? I don't know offhand that. Presumably, you have the the time of day that the event occurred. There's a small paper looking at the time of day that events occurred and the bystander CPR rates vary during the day. If I can remember rightly, the bystander CPR rates are, are, are low overnight. Then they pick up during the morning and then they peak it about mid afternoon and then after mid afternoon until early evening and then they drop off again overnight. Is that reflective of when cardiac arrests happen or do our cardiac arrests sort of steady throughout the 24-hour day? No, though there is a variation on when the arrests occur, but it's all to do with, I think, where people have their arrests. I did read a, a while ago that there was a propensity for people to have a cardiac arrest on a Monday morning, but I think that's lessened now. Yes, yeah, yeah. There is some variation during the week. It's Monday morning and it's quieter over the weekend. It's going back to work on a Monday morning, the events, and there is some variation in the day of the week. And also there's some variation over the year as well. I guess seasonal factors come into play, the cold or extreme cold and heat and extreme heat play a factor. And you said we weren't going to mention COVID-19, but infections and things like that place a burden on the heart. And if there's a heavy flu outbreak over the winter, that will impact on the number of cases that will suffer a cardiac arrest as as a result of any infection. So what are the outputs of your project? The main output for the registry is an annual epidemiology report. So over the past three, four years, we have looked at For each ambulance service that are submitting data to the registry, so we look at what is you probably know is the chain of survival. So we look at the incidence of events, 
in the year. So looking at the incidence of adult and paediatric events, the demographics of them, sort of the age, sex, distribution, the etiology, which is what caused the cardiac arrest. In most cases, it will be of cardiac origin. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, we do receive information on traumatic and drug overdose events. Where the event occurs, so if it occurs in a rural community or in, in urban environments, and then going for the chain of survival, looking at the scene outcome, so whether uh, a patient was declared deceased on scene, whether they were transported to hospital, and when they were transported to hospital, whether it was a ROSC had been achieved or ongoing CPR was, ca- was being carried out. And then we look at the initial rhythm, um, looking at whether it's shockable and the outcomes from that, how many cases were witnessed, as how many received bystander CPR. And then the main outcomes that we have, we have three really, although we only really present information on two. We have information on whether uh, a ROSC, and I assume hopefully all your listeners know what ROSC is. Would you probably just remind us, Terry? It's, it's return of spontaneous circulation. So basically, if somebody's had an arrest, they're not conscious, not responding, they're not breathing. But ROSC, basically, the heart starts beating without any CPR or defibrillation. So it's they're, they're, on, they're on their own. So they've come back to life. Early defibrillation is the key for the majority of cases. Sometimes it can be as a result of CPR. If it's good quality CPR, you know, somebody would come back to life if they're doing good CPR. So we have gone seen. So that's basically before the ambulance service leaves the scene to go to hospital. So there we have ROSC on scene. And then the main outcomes that we are interested in, and which is part of the ambulance quality indicators for NHS England, is whether a patient has achieved ROSC at hospital handover. So when you know, the ambulance gets to A&E, whether the patient has a ROSC or not. So you're saying that they might not have been able to resuscitate them at the scene, but they may have on the journey to hospital. I guess because eCPR type equipment, Lucas machines, and even coming into players in some countries is ECMO, isn't it? So yeah, and performing CPR in the moving ambulance is very difficult, but there will be decisions made so those that achieve ROSC on scene, not all of them will have ROSC at hospital handover. Uh, they might have re-arrest in the ambulance and vice versa. There might be some that are, you know, they transport, start to transport uh, that haven't achieved ROSC, but achieve ROSC in, in the ambulance on the way in. So we have ROSC at hospital handover and then we have survival to discharge. I guess some patients, are, or from speaking with many in the group, have multiple arrests. They, they have one and they're down the ambulance, get to them, they resuscitate them. Then perhaps in the ambulance or later on, they have multiple events. I, I guess this is all presented as one event, I take it. Yeah, if, if it's on the same day, wherever the, the original location is, if it's at home and they've resuscitated, put in the ambulance and re-arrest again, that, that is all counted as the same event. If they subsequently are discharged and then re-arrest at a later date, then that's counted as a, as a separate event. So is this data only provided for certain parties or can anyone see this information? Can the members of the public, if they've got an interest, to see where they, they sort of fit into the picture? Because my arrest was in 2014, which is the first year that you did your stats. But can other people see about their year? 
We have a website, and on the website, what we have now is the annual EPI report, and we have an infographic that shows all the sort of the incidents, bystander witness rates, bystander CPR rates, the variation between each ambulance service. So all the information that's provided on the for the ambulance quality indicators, that information is on, on our website and it's backed up by data from the registry. So the information that's on the website is for annual average and then for the current year, we update it as every month's data is uh, submitted to the registry. So for 2019, we have data up till the end of November. Oh, excellent. You click on the ambulance service and then it shows the the figures for that. But with regards to individual patient information. I guess people can go to the, if they really want to know the individual details of their case, they can go to the hospital, can't they? Or the ambulance service. If they want to, about individual cases, you can go to the ambulance service. But anybody who wants to know whether they're on the registry or not, they can put in freedom of information requests through the normal channels. Your arrest was in, what did you say, 2014? Mm -hmm. We can't confirm that now because as part of our information governance, after two years, we have to delete all personal identifiable information from the registry. So, yeah. So for 2014, although you you probably are on the registry, we wouldn't be able to confirm that now. Okay, just to, to go back to what you said about your website, I've just Googled and I put in OHCAO and then space Warwick, and that brought up you as the first option. And I clicked on the first link. And as you say, that brings up your website with information about the project and the information for health professionals and information for public. So there's more info if you're a lay person. And then there's some publications. And at the bottom of the menu, there's a link to your interactive map. Yeah. And that's a very nice infographic, as you mentioned. You've got all of the various uh, regions highlighted in lovely colors. And if I clicked on the east of England, which is my region, it then brings up a, a nice page with full stats, number of ROSCs, number of ROSCs with a particular subgroup and number of survivals and the bystander cpr and the number of public accessible defibrillators that we used which is that's really interesting one thing it only goes back to 2015 there is that when the data was published in 2015 or would would mine be in that 2015 one or is 2014 not on here for some reason it's not on there because of the completeness of the information the registry has data back to 2014 but it was just the completeness of the registry. Not every ambulance service was submitting data in that year, so we didn't want to add that to the interactive map. So for completeness, we just thought, oh, we'll start at 2015, where when everybody was sending us good quality information. Okay. Well, I think if anyone's interested in looking at that, um, that data, it's a really nice infographic, and there's lots of information on there. It's really worth having a little bit of a delve into that if you want to have more and i don't think i've got any more questions for you terry so i don't know if you've got anything else that you'd like to say my interest is looking at public access defibrillation at the moment and with the current project that i'm involved in is looking at where are the public access defibrillators in relation to uh, cardiac arrest and are they in the right place 
So I'm doing a three-year study looking at the location of all defibrillators. So we're working closely with British Heart Foundation, who are developing their circuit database of all uh, defibrillators in the country. So are they are they located in the right place in relation to cardiac arrest? If not, where should we put defibrillators in the future, so that they are made of are available to everybody that has a cardiac arrest? So, for example, we had a medical student uh, a couple of years ago that looked at cardiac arrest that occurred in schools, and as a byproduct of that small project, found out that if a defibrillator was put in every school in the West Midlands and made available, nearly 40% of all cardiac arrests could be treated with a defibrillator. They were in within 300 metres of 40% of all cardiac arrests. That's quite a staggering statistic really, isn't it? Yeah, it is a big number, considering that only 5% of cases are treated with a public access defibrillator. So we're looking at where where to put defibrillators in the community, doing some mathematical modelling. And then there's another little project which is everybody's keen to be part of that's been funded by Resuscitation Council, is looking at the use of drones to deliver AEDs to cardiac arrests where it's going to be it's difficult for ambulances to get to. So in rural communities or where ambulances are having long travelling times. So that's another small project that we're getting involved with. Over the last couple of years, I've seen various sort of newspaper reports about drone use, typically in um, Europe, I think possibly Belgium and the Netherlands. Sweden is the the big place as well. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes, yeah. So has anyone got them in actual use yet, do you know? I don't think they are at the moment. The main problem with using drones in the UK is getting Civil Aviation Authority authorization to fly the drones out of line of sight. Because at the moment, as far as I understand the regulation, you're only allowed to fly drones within 500 meters, so you, you can only see them. You have to see, be able to see the drone, whereas with AED delivery, you're going to have to be able to fly them remotely. And I imagine the shenanigans that happened at was it Gatwick Airport or some other airport in the last year or two, that only complicates the scenario and the legal aspect, doesn't it? They are officially no-fly zones, so you have to you know, build into whatever model you use. You have to fly them around no-fly zones to deliver them. So if you, you, know, if you can't fly over military air, air bases or military training grounds and things like that. So there are certain areas that you can't fly them. But in, in certain places like cities and things like that, they could be, they could be quite useful. Well, is, uh, colleagues in Canada have done some feasibility studies looking at delivering uh, AEDs sort of in, into high-rise buildings and whether it's feasible to do that. Yeah, because I believe the stats on survival from a cardiac arrest when you're above floor three are pretty dire, really, aren't they? Yeah, it can be, yeah. Marcus in, in, in Singapore that looked at modelling you know, where do you put a defibrillator in a high-rise building? Is it on the ground floor or do you actually put one in, in the lift? So, yeah. That's true. Yeah. One on every floor or every other floor, ideally. If you can afford them, yes. <laughs> well, I don't know if you listened to my podcast recently with Gary Montague of the Heart Hero AED, which is an, an American startup, and their their aim is to deliver a 
high quality, low cost device. And I think they're aiming currently for under $700 for a device that's got GPS tracking. It uses batteries that you can buy in a shop, links to the emergency services in the States anyway, but they hope to have it so they can go to most emergency services. So essentially it's a domestic AED and they, they aim to get it down to you know as low cost as possible. So it may be in a few years' time, if they get the volume, that they can actually get it in a, a high proportion of people's houses. Yeah, yeah. Which is the, the perfect place for them, really. Yeah. So thank you very much, Terry, for your time today. It's been a... I, I just want to add a, a, another thing, and I must do this. i just say that the registry is currently funded by the British Heart Foundation and the Resuscitation Council. We have funding uh, for another three years. We are backed by the Association of Ambulance Chief Executives and the National Association of Ambulance Chief Medical Officers. And I'd just like to thank the work of all of all our, my colleagues at, at Warwick. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile mentioning that because uh, without without their funds and your, their support, you wouldn't be able to do this. And and in time, I, I'm sure it's going to see uh, reap dividends in in feeding back into the chain of survival, so yeah. that more and more people s- to survive. Yeah, hopefully. So it's been a really interesting chat, and thank you very much for your time. And take care in this strange times we're in. And I look forward to seeing more stats and information from you and your website. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, please don't hesitate. And your your contact details presumably be on the uh, website. If you contact us through the uh, website, is the OCA resource email address that will be picked up by one of the team and passed on. I will put the, all, all the links into the show notes on the, the website and the podcast. Yeah, okay. So thanks very much, Terry, and we'll speak again soon. Cheers. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time.